a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit they say they want the kingdom but they don't want God in it yeah I went with nothing nothing but the thought of you I went wandering From the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I, uh, if you have family or friends who can't watch uh, the show on television, they can go to the internet, watch streaming video from anywhere in the world. Go to www.hotm.tv. Uh, listen, uh, I want to invite two friends out here really quickly. And, uh, you know, we have people who do all kinds of things to support the ministry. And these are two of my dear friends. Uh, uh, this is Jeff and this is Margaret. And, and Jeff and I actually were on Mormon mission together 20-some-odd uh, years back. Boo. And they're some, of my, <laughs> they're some of my best friends. And they supply our audience with great homemade desserts every week just out of the kindness of their hearts. So we love them. I just wanted to say thanks. And how, aren't, they, aren't they a handsome couple? Yeah. Hi, Mom! <laughs> All right. I was a born-again Mormon. Our approach in the book is to set religion aside and introduce Christian relationship to God, and then to examine Mormonism from a reasonable position of having been one for 40 years. I was a born-again Mormon's available at Oasis Books in Logan, Christian Gift and Bible in Sandy, New Life Books in Layton, Sam Weller's Downtown, Salt Lake City, Calvary Chapel, and other Calvary Chapel stores, Dolly's Books in Park City, Gift of Grace Bible in Springville, utlm.org, and at the store itself. And UTLM is having a special where if you purchase $70 worth of material from their ministry, and that is the ministry to purchase material from, uh, they'll give you I Was a Born Again Mormon uh, at no charge. And we believe it's a great gift to give because it, it's not like the show in that I go into all the stuff or it's very relaxed and uh, just try to approach people from a biblical way of understanding the Lord. Remember Friday, December 5th, I think that is not this Friday, but the following uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. here at the studio. We're having our annual Christmas open house food giveaways, Christmas cheer. Come by, say hello to all the hosts here on their sets. And uh, that is again from 7 to 9 p.m. Friday, December 5th. Last week, I read a blog from Bill Marriott of Marriott Hotels who stood against Mormonism's support of Proposition 8 in California for same-sex marriage. In that blog, Brother Marriott gleefully stated that the Marriott Hotel Corporation has had the pleasure of hosting numerous conventions or festivals for the LGBT. And at that time, when I read it, I said I didn't know what that stood for, and I didn't. Uh, faithful viewer Richard T. wrote and explained, LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered. So there you have it. 
We have had hundreds, 700 emails in our inbox over the past month or so, and they all went unanswered until last Sunday of last week, and I finally got through them all. Out of those, we had a number of really good and insightful things that were offered, truly inspiring stories of faith, people coming to know the Lord, leaving Mormonism for a relationship with him, lots of wonderful information, and we thank all of you. We appreciate you taking the time to share these things with us. It helps uh, the show go and gives us so much stuff to consider. Before we go into our topic tonight, let me share a few emails that I think will add dimension to the program. The first have a common thread or theme to them, the first three or four actually, and I call it Mormon chutzpah. And that's a, uh, a Yiddish word for oh God, a Yiddish word for nerve. Uh, they're unapologetic and they're relentless uh, infliction of the Mormon way upon everybody else. For the first one, Fox News ran an e-article entitled "Holocaust Survivors Want Mormons to Stop Baptizing Their Dead." It seems that 13 years ago, there was an uproar over this very same practice, and the LDS church entered into an agreement to stop baptizing living Mormons in their temples in the name of Holocaust victims. However, according to Holocaust researchers Helen Radke, the agreement didn't last long, as there have been thousands upon thousands of breaches of this uh, agreement over the years. Holocaust victims, families, and survivors themselves are especially appalled by the LDS posthumous practice because these people who lost their lives in these concentration camps did so as a direct result of their faith, which is Judaism, not Mormonism. Ernest Michael, honorary chairperson for the American Gathering of Holocaust Survivors, said, quote, We ask you to respect us and our Judaism just as we respect your religion, end quote. Now, what did the LDS Church spokesman say to reporters in response on Monday, November 10th? Listen to this response. Quote, Ending the practice outright was not part of our agreement and would essentially be, be asking Mormons to alter their beliefs. Listen to this, he said, quote, We don't think any faith group has the right to ask another to change its doctrines. If our work for the dead is properly understood, it should not be a source of friction to anyone. It's merely a free will offering. In other words, they're saying they're going to do whatever the hell they want to do, excuse me, using the name of your dead family members if they want, and if it angers you, it's because you don't properly understand their free will offering. Where does this audacity come from? It comes from the egocentric ideation that they and they alone possess all of God's truth, and therefore they have the right to do whatever they want to do. In May, the Vatican ordered Catholic dioceses worldwide to withhold member registries from Mormons so that the Catholics could not be baptized posthumously. Good job, Pope. And I would suggest here and now that all leaders of all faith groups unite and officially voice the same demands as the Jews and the Catholics. If they're baptizing our dead relatives and giving them their Mormon endowments, have you ever wondered if they're also marrying our dead mothers and our dead daughters to themselves too? I'd be willing to bet my bottom dollar, and it's pretty low, that there are, they are still performing secret, posthumous, 
ceilings of women to living LDS men in the temples. I'd be willing to bet. I can't prove it. So what can you do? First, abandon ship. If you or your family's names are on the rolls of the church and you don't believe in any of this stuff, write the letter. You can go to www.bornagainmormon.com and you can get an example of what to do. Write a letter and say, take me off those rolls. Uh, now, secondly, make your voice known on the subject of this vicarious, posthumous work they're doing on dead people in these temples. On the screen, we're going to put up the address, let's see if it's there, of the LDS Church headquarters. It's 50 East North Temple, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84150. Inundate them with written instructions that they are never to use any of your deceased family's names in their temple work without prior written uh, consent. Get your family members to sign it. Send a message loud and clear. Say, I don't want anyone at any time in Mormonism to ever use the names or genealogies of anyone in my family for their secret ceremonies. If any of my deceased members' names have been used without express written per family permission, we demand this work to be retracted immediately. Ask them to respond with verification that your request has been put into immediate effect. Now, why go to all this trouble? because it puts a check on the LDS church thinking that they can use our deceased family members to fuel their religious machine. In a similar vein, and as an interesting aside, the second email, Jan wrote uh, and told me that in her American history class at BYU, she learned that President Wilford Woodruff of the LDS church years ago was baptized posthum uh, for in the St. George Temple on behalf of Christopher Columbus, John Wesley, Ben Franklin, George Washington, then had each of them endowed and ordained as Mormon high priests. The pride and chutzpah of these guys. First of all, why didn't they baptize Benedict Arnold, Blackbeard, or Jesse James? No, they, they, they baptized the, the discoverer of America and the presidents of the United States. I mean, why only the successful? Why wouldn't they? Don't you think Jesus would start with the lowly and work his way up? But instead, the LDS, to show their sick heart, uh, some, the LDS church, I mean, by doing this type of thing. Then we have another story about LDS Hutzpah of Men on a Mission, a calendar that has recently been disseminated where a Las Vegas entrepreneur was excommunicated by the LDS Church because he put a calendar together of Mormon returned Mormon missionaries with children, cover your ears, their shirts off. Uh, I suppose a church has the right ridiculous and controlling as it is to take such, such action. If somebody does something publicly that they're offended by, I guess they can do that. But that's not the issue. The issue is, it seems this entrepreneur had graduated from Brigham Young University in August, and the LDS Church retroactively yanked his diploma. Officially, the charges against the kid were a failure to pay tithing and lapsing in other church duties and that's why they exed him uh, and that's and then they rescinded his diploma it's an unrelenting abuse of power but this power is arbitrarily administrated recall brother marriott has any church action occurred against him nay nay said the goat but this little old byu grad is 
used as a living, breathing sacrifice upon the altar of conformity to show all the rest of the lowly LDS don't do anything out of ordinary. He put a calendar together with some missionaries without their shirts on, and they excommunicate him and take his diploma away. Marriott sells porn and alcohol by the dozens and stands against the LDS stance for Proposition 8 in California, and nothing happens to him. How long do you put up with the stuff? I mean, do you just sit there and think, well, you know, they know what's right. It just, it's just incomprehensible to me in what's accepted. Quickly, Arthur, another writer, wrote and said he found intriguing. Uh, it's so intriguing that the Mormons claim to love the Bible and to be Christian. He decided to check it out for himself. So he actually went to an LDS ward and he sat down in their services and he took notes on what they reference in their material. And this is what he heard. Former LDS prophets were quoted five times. Doctrine and Covenants was quoted four times. The Book of Mormon two times. The current prophet one time. Joseph Smith was also quoted once. This is in the sacrament service. Zero references came from the Bible. Zero references were from or about Jesus. So then he went to the basic gospel doctrine class, and there he recorded that they used the Book of Mormon three times, former LDS prophets twice, and an LDS general conference talk once. He did, however, mention that the Book of Mormon, quote, was actually taken from the Bible itself. Arthur says it's baffling to him, baffling that how this people can continually tell the world that they are Christian, but run services that never even quote Jesus or from the Bible. It's a great question. We also received at least 15 emails that talked about how wonderful the LDS church is, especially in its support of families and family values. I would suggest a couple of things related to families and God. First of all, and this may sound a bit radical, but families can become as much of an idol as anything else in this fallen world if you're not careful. Now, don't get all freaky on me here, but families are not the end all of existence, okay? Jesus, the author of Brotherly Love, had much to say about families. Let me give you a few quotes. Matthew chapter 10, he said, quote, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When he, told his mo- uh, when he was told that his mother and his brothers were out to speak to him and see him, he says in Matthew 12, 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward the disciples and said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father in heaven, the same as my mother and sister and brother. You want more? You LDS who relentlessly send me emails that paint sweet, sickly pictures of Jesus who would never say anything mean about anything? When a guy whose father died comes to Jesus and wanted, instead of going with Jesus right then, wanted to go and bury his daughter, I mean his father, Jesus said to the man in the midst of his grief, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Can you imagine being invited to the funeral of a general authority of the LDS church and saying the same thing? Uh, go ahead. Oh, just I'm, uh, You go ahead and go. I'm going to let the dead bury the dead. I wish we heard more of this type of attitude coming 
from the LDS. Because of Jesus, his gospel, the truth, he said, a brother will deliver a brother unto death and the father his child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. This is the biblical Jesus, his gospel, his attitude to how important he is. It's not disparaging against families. And I think you would understand that if you're hearing me correctly. It's just saying, look, nothing comes between me and the relationship you have with me. Nothing. Families included. The point is that the true church of Jesus Christ is made up of individuals. And to be quite frank, such individualism is often antithetical against the family unit. Families can actually serve to keep people from a relationship with Jesus because they enforce a religion in and of themselves and they enforce the family traditions over what the individual might experience relative to God. There was this Chinese sage named Mo Tzu who went about advocating brotherly love and the Confucianists who worshipped the family unit hated and condemned them arguing that the principle of universal love would dissolve family and destroy society. Brooke Adams, in his book, The Law of Civilization and Decay, said that when, quote, St. Bernard preached the gospel, his influence was so strong that mothers are said to have hid their sons from him and wives their husbands, lest he should lure them away. In fact, Adams writes, quote, he actually broke up so many homes that the abandoned wives formed a nunnery. This is what Jesus was saying. If you get to the place where the opinions and the sway of your family take precedence over me and your relationship with me, you're not worthy of me. And neither is a church that promotes such tribe. Finally, we received an uh, email, a sad email. Quickly, we'll read, and it's a warning to all of us. It's from Eileen. My daughter just married a boy who did not practice the Mormon religion but was a member In fact, we asked how that would work, her being a Christian and him in the Mormon church. He promised that he would never take her from her religion. He promised her dad. It has been five months and she was baptized into his church. I cried and cried. I am heartsick. I know that everyone makes mistakes and we should forgive as our Savior forgives, but I don't know how to do that. There is such danger in interfaith marriage folks, romantic love rarely has the depth or ability to overcome the frictions that come with interfaith marriage. Usually one partner gives out and goes in the direction of the other, regardless of the truthfulness of what the people are following. Be very, very wary, especially the youth, and it's very tough in this state, my heart goes out to you, of dating LDS people. I have to tell you, I promise you, the sole objective of a Latter-day Saint family, if you are not a member and you're dating somebody in their home, the sole objective is to get you to convert. They, they think, they sit up, they talk. What can they do to bring you in and get you to convert? And the power is uh, very, very impressive. With that, let's have a prayer. Lord, we need you. I need you. We pray for our audience, for those who are searching. 
as we go into our message tonight, we pray for uh, those in their homes, those who are channel surfing. We thank you for our volunteers. We thank you for the people here in the audience tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been doing this program for quite a while now. We've received a lot of mail, a lot of email, plenty of phone calls. We've sat with a lot of very tired and sad and searching people from the fallout of being LDS. This year, I've had the gnawing impression that we need to do something to kind of end the year with uh, one of the best defenses and the best maybe even offenses to provide for those people who have been or are looking at Mormonism. The study of LDS history goes a long way to show its warts, but warts are often explained away by Mormon apologists and often they are not believed. We've had callers call the show who say, everything you say is a lie. And I can give them references from uh, the Journal of Discourses and from their own scripture and they will still say, you are lying, you're lying. Unable to sleep a month or so ago, I reached up to a bookshelf above my head and I pulled out a small paperback written in 1956. And um, I read this and it gave me the thought of what we should do in the last four weeks. Some of you have asked why we're not doing general conference, which I said we were going to do a number of weeks ago, and I haven't been able to find enough substantive, substantive stuff to build a show on, so we're going on with this. This is what I read. The Mormons insist that probably no passage of the Bible has come down to us translated correctly. And yet the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's other writings contain several thousand verbatim quotes from the King James Version. These include at least 15 full chapters of Isaiah and two chapters of Malachi. They, there are an exact language of the King James Version with all of its 16th century idiom. An examination of Mormon writings reveals that if the quotes and biblical allusions were excluded, the remainder would be somewhat meaningless. The Mormons stand accused of two inconsistencies. One, they have repudiated the very text, the Bible, that is the literary basis for their writings. And two, they have produced out of no credible source their own scriptures from which they quote endlessly in support of their doctrines. He goes on to say that several Latter-day Saints who are known to the writer ascribe their deliverance from Mormonism to the fact that when they attempted to reconcile Mormonism with the Bible, these studies revealed the inconsistencies of their church and brought forth the truth of God's word to their eyes and heart. That being said, the LDS defense against this is to turn around and say the Bible cannot be trusted. The Bible has not been translated correctly. It has been altered, bastardized, and therefore Mormonism is needed and their revelation powers to deliver the full gospel to people that's been taken from the Bible. This being the case, we're going to spend the next few weeks of 2008 and do a fairly close defense and examination of the Bible, where it came from, how it was compiled, what makes it reliable, trustworthy, and the most amazing book ever given to humankind. We will also then look at early church Christian history, which the LDS are constantly mocking, and see what happened to the church that Jesus Christ established and over the ages and how the Bible fared during that time. 
It's our hope that of these next four to five weeks, we will help open your eyes to the value of God's word and give you enough ammunition to not only trust it completely, but to defend it against the Mormon claim that it's inferior to their Book of Mormon or other LDS inspirations. So to begin, the word canon means cane, canon and cane, and it literally meant a measuring stick. Okay, in the Christian times, canon came to mean a written ruler of faith. And by this ruler, almost like a stick, a ruler, you're able to see what your thoughts and actions are relative to what God has to lay out for you. That's why they called it the canon, the cane, the ruler. All right. Tonight, we're going to look at the Old Testament as the written ruler of the faith. Let me remind you all that Jesus himself quoted from the Old Testament often and relentlessly, illustrating the importance of God's word even in his mortal life. Jesus never referred or alluded to Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, or told us to trust anything else other than what was written before and what would be written by his chosen apostolic witnesses. Now, the Old Testament was in some ways older to Jesus when he was alive than the New Testament is to the Gentile nation that came forward with the Christian church. And yet he trusted, he trusted its translation as authentic and reliable and authoritative. Okay, This Old Testament, which the Jews called the Word of God or the Scriptures, was read trusted, and constantly used in their gatherings and synagogues. Early in Jewish history, God used writings as a medium for his word to be handed down to chosen people. First, we had Ten Commandments written in stone, twice. Then Moses' law, which was written in a book, according to Deuteronomy 31. Then copies were made of Moses' law and the Ten Commandments, in Deuter according to Deuteronomy 17. Then Joshua added his written book of the, uh, to the law in Joshua 24, 26. Then Samuel wrote a book and laid it up unto God, meaning he put it in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was compiled with the writings, according to 1 Samuel 10, 25. Now ask yourself a question here. Why would God tell these chosen men and prophets to write what they wrote if these writings couldn't be trusted then or now? He's just having them go through some exercise that, that God himself can't protect. That's the image that the LDS want you to have of the Bible, that they wrote these things, but men got in there and just messed it all up. All right. According to 2 Kings 22, this book was compiled 400 years after the compilation started. So we know for 400 years, these writings were collected and kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Ask yourself, why would God be able to preserve them for them and not for us? Huh? Prophets, too, wrote books, according to Jeremiah and Zechariah, and they were added to these sacred writings. Ezra, after the Babylonian captivity, read from the book publicly. All right? Now jump way ahead in time for, with me for a second. There was this guy named Josephus. And he was born in 37 A.D. Uh, in Jerusalem to a family uh, of priestly aristocracy. Uh, he was bigwig. He, was, he understood Hebrew culture. He understood Greek culture. He was the governor of Galilee. He was a military commander in the wars with Rome. 
and he was even present at the destruction of Jerusalem. Being one of the most reliable historians, Josephus asserts that the collection of Hebrew books accepted as canon then and now, Josephus said that these books that were accepted then, which are the same books we have now, were decided and set upon 400 years earlier under Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, excuse me, at the time of Ezra, all right? Again, he says that all the books of Old Testament canon were settled uh, at this time. Now, understand, at one time, there was 22 books of the Old Testament. They were reclassified and put in a different order. There's now 39, but it's all the same writings. When we come back, we're going to talk about those writings, and then we'll go to your phone calls. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. See you then. All right, we're back. All right, so these writings of the Old Testament were, were not known as the Old Testament until after the Christian scriptures came out, and they were used to differentiate them from the writings of the apostles. Remember, they were known as the scriptures. Around 400 or 300 years before the birth of Christ, somewhere in there, these Hebrew scriptures were translated into a Greek version called the Septuagint. All right? And that's a Greek word, Septuagint, that means 70, and it refers to 70 scholars who came to Alexandria who could understand and translate Hebrew and Greek, and they wrote the Hebrew scriptures in a Greek form. That's what the Septuagint is. The compilers of the Septuagint chose to include some other books in the Bible known as the Apocryphal Writings. Now, these typically refer to 14, maybe 16 or so books, which can be found in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's where the apocryphal books were slipped in. Their authorship is uncertain, and they were not ever included or accepted in the Hebrew Scriptures. They were after uh, the written Hebrew oracles stopped, after Revelation stopped, when God was quiet for 400 years between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. It's called the intertestamentary period. There was 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. That 400-year period, this is when these writings came forward and when it has been shown that prophets weren't receiving revelation, none of the Hebrew oracles spoke, and that's when all this apocryphal material come up. Now, Josephus rejected the apocrypha completely, wholly. They were never quoted in the New Testament by anyone, including Jesus. They were not recognized by the early church fathers as canonical or as divinely uh, inspired. You got all that? 
I mention that because there are people who will today, they will go to the apocryphal books and act like they're more important than the, the books that have been uh, decided to be of canon. And I just want you to know the apocryphal books don't have any history of being accepted. All right. Now, then the Bible was translated into Latin. We went from Hebrew, I'm talking, and then we went to the Greek, Greek Septuagint, and then we get to the Latin. Um, they didn't translate the, from the Hebrew scriptures, but they translated it from the Septuagint, which included the Apocrypha. And these writings were carried over into this book called the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate was the Bible that the people had during the Catholic rule of the church before the Protestant Reformation. And so no one could read Latin. Only the, only the Catholic hierarchy could read Latin. So they're the ones who had it. Well, included in the Latin Vulgate were these apocryphal books. Protestant scholars automatically rejected these apocryphal books, not as belonging in any way to God's inspired word, just as the Hebrews had done, just as Jesus had done by not quoting them, and just as the early church fathers had done by uh, refusing them. But the Roman Catholic Church held a council called the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent, as a means to stop the Protestant movement, from progressing, at this council, they decided that the apocryphal books were canonical. So that is why you will have different Bibles today. You can go into a used bookstore, and you can open the Bible, and you can see the Old Testament as it has always been, 400 years, at the time of Ezra, that's the Old Testament, always existed. And then you can find some books that have these apocryphal writings, and then you can have the New Testament. But I want you to know that is usually in the Catholic Bible, those are almost always now in the Catholic Bibles, which are called the Douay uh, version, D-O-U-A-Y-E, uh, -E, I think, or A-Y. All right, outside of the 14 or so apocryphal books that we've talked about, and I'm not going to give you their titles because of time, but there's about 14, there were other writings that were sort of like the Apocrypha too. They've worked their way into some Bibles as well. The Book of Enoch, Assumption of Moses, Ascension of Isaiah, the Book of Jubilees, Testament of Twelve Patriarchs, the Sibylline Oracles, all these different. These were merely books that people tried to push off as being legitimate scripture. So it's nothing new when Joseph comes with Doctrine comes Book of Mormon, things like this. This was happening all along. The Old Testament writings were originally kept on skins and kept in the temple uh, until the Babylonian captivity. After that, they started taking those skins and copyists or scribes, also called lawyers because they understood the law so well. They were called lawyers or scribes. They would take these and tediously, tediously copy and translate and move them forward. Quickly, before we go to the phones, in addition to these versions, there are several other existent books that validate the, uh, the validity of the Old Testament. There are targums. What those are are the Bible translated into Aramaic. And it includes not only the, the Old Testament verses, but it also includes uh, some of their commentary on what was going on because the Hebrews, after the uh, Babylonian captivity, <laughs> they... Uh, they uh, started speaking Aramaic. So they translated the uh, Old Testament into an Aramaic language. That's called the Targums. We also have uh, the Talmud, which includes all the Old Testament writings, but includes all the views, commentaries, laws, things like that. And finally, there are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm going to end with the Dead Sea Scrolls as justification for the validity of the Old Testament. And let me say this. 
Prior to the discovery of the Qumran case, 1947, I think, I'm not sure, the Old Testament was substantiated only by the Septuagint, Masoretic texts, those are the Hebrew texts, the Targums, the Talmud, those were the way, and a few manuscripts. Those are how we told how valid the Hebrew scriptures were, okay? And they concurred exactly with what we have in our Bibles today, all right? And then we find these Dead Sea Scrolls, and we examine them, and they find that the Old Testament passages that are included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, I think it contains the whole book of Isaiah, are word for word, 99.8% correct, and the 0.2% that is not correct is uh, words like and, but, and, or. And they do not necessarily move any type of doctrinal, uh, affect any type of doctrinal change within the text. The Dead Sea Scrolls moved the validity of the Old Testament verification a thousand years earlier than what we had before in these other evidences. All along, Bible critics were saying, oh, these are old, these are just old, they're not reliable, you know, the Mormons, you can't trust it. We, they find these Dead Sea Scrolls, they examine them, and they verify a thousand years earlier how correct they are. There's some supports for you for the, the validity of the Old Testament. Next week, we will go into the validity of the new. Let's go to the phones. We're going to Kevin in West Jordan. Online, don't know. Uh, we got to move this board because it's covering up the lines, Michael. Uh, Kevin on line two. Kevin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to explain to you why uh, the crosses are absent on the Mormon church. The caller last week had asked about that. Okay. Okay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved it is the power of God. So anytime you go down the street and see a um, Mormon church and doesn't have a cross on it, and you're a Christian, just realize they don't have a cross because they're perishing, and and they wouldn't put such a foolish thing on their building, uh, right. according to them. And that's right. really the reason why they don't do it. And uh, uh, a word of wisdom in the Bible is Proverbs 22, verse 4. Okay. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And also in 3 John, verse 2, uh, it says, Beloved, Michael, I wish above all else, above all things, that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospers. And, you know, John uh, from O'Fallon called last night, and, you know, he's not going to prosper and be in good health. Yeah. Until he, uh, you know, until his soul begins to prosper. It's It's a really good point. I really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. We're having some audio difficulties in here. I apologize. Let's go to Michael and Ogden on line one. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Love the haircut, love the beard, love the shirt, bro. I know those LDS are squirming in their pants right now. <laughs> hey, listen, what, what I want to say to you, Sean, is that, um, well, uh, for those who practice Judaism, you were talking earlier about, you know, the, the, the uh, people who practice Judaism and uh, also the cat. Catholicism, yeah. that they uh, that they uh, basically don't want anybody doing these baptisms for the dead, you know, within the ODS Church, or these uh, uh, possibility or plausibility of uh, these uh, wives, you know, sealing these wives. Uh, but see, to me, and there's I got five other people here in, in, in the room watching you, 
and to me, Sean, I'm Catholic, first off, but uh, to me, we don't even, I don't even understand, I can't, I, I'm surprised by my Pope, I mean, that he's even, uh, to, by the Pope, that he's even given this thing credence, because to me, baptism for the dead by the ODS, or sealing in their temple, they're nothing more than like uh, Paul said about uh, worship, worshiping the dumb idols, woven cardings. You know? Yeah, you know, I agree with you, and I understand your point, but here's the problem, I think. When you lose somebody, if you lose your parent or if you lose a daughter, we've had examples of people call the show and email us who have had a child who's, uh, who passes on, and they find out later that some member of their family has taken that child's name. It's a very sensitive subject. I would be really bothered if one of my children, God forbid, died in an accident, and then I learned later that she, was, uh, she had vicarious work done by her by some family, uh, eager family member in the LDS church. It's, it's more of an emotional thing. I don't think it's doctrinal or it's bothering them doctrinally. I just think it has to do with the peace of mind of knowing that there's a Latter-day Saint person who is using their name they have their name actually written out when they were born and when they died on a piece of paper and they go through the temple and they represent that person in their body and I just think it's the emotional effect that it has on the family is why the Catholic Church and the Holocaust victims have said no more. But do you, do you show at least, do you understand uh, what I'm saying? Uh, what I'm saying is that, is that I'm sure there are ODS people out there right now saying, hmm, uh, yeah, well, see, obviously these folks believe, they believe that there's something to this baptism by proxy. Do you see where I'm coming from? That's I understand what you're saying. to all of us in the room here, yeah, but, none of us are LDS. Yeah, but listen. different religions. Yeah, but listen, are, listen to this, though. I mean... Okay, hey, uh, Sean, can I hang up and listen, or do you have a question for me? Uh, can I just hang up and listen to you? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly fine. Okay, yeah, I have a question. Just let me ask you this. Okay. If somebody thinks there's validity to the baptism, that would, mean, that would in, infer that they believe it actually is having some post-mortal effect on people's spirits. Why would you not want that? I mean, so if it actually is real or has any validity at all, why would you fear it? So I don't think that that position is probably no, on no, target. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that 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 that, that even even concerning ourselves with it, even even speaking about it, that there should that, that that's given validity to the ODS church. Oh. Saying, hey, we're concerned because um, you know you're doing you're 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 um, disturbing or you're 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 doing something to the pat. You know our, our our. I get it. Thank you so much. I think I cut him off. Okay, we're going to Rhombus in Salt Lake City, first-time caller. Rhombus' name scares me. Rhombus, you're on the air. Hello? Hello, Rhombus. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Uh, before we got to the good stuff, I just wanted to say I like your beard. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, your Ramon shirt. Yes, two compliments on the Ramon shirt tonight. Uh, I don't know about the Ramones, but... It's all right. I, I like it better. So what's uh, what's your question, Rhombus? Um, if the Mormons can baptize dead people, what's keeping other religions from not doing it? Other religions don't believe it. Other religions know there's nothing to it. 
it was Joseph and Joseph Smith only who, uh, by revelation, decided that it was a practice that uh, was valid, and he built the whole temple ceremony and stuff around it, vicarious work for the dead. No other religions believe in it, so they don't even bother with it. Yeah, you can pretty much tell. Uh, what do you, what would you say about uh, the issue that uh, the Mormons were getting political on the gay rights issue? I think it suits them perfectly. I think they're a political machine. And uh, I've made comments earlier on it that I don't think uh, the Christian church, the body of Christ, there's no edict that says individual members have to do that to be good Christians. But I think you have to be involved in those type of things to be a good Mormon. They tell them get involved in political stuff because they're a political machine. That's why they're so powerful. But like Jesus said, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. But they're not going to fight because they're not of this world. That doesn't mean I'm a conscientious objector or anything like that. I'm just saying in context of getting involved in all the politics, if an individual Christian is led to do that, praise God. He's using them. But as far as a collective... What's that? I hear this. Pardon me? I hear this. I didn't understand you again. I hear this. Oh, you hear this. Okay. Yeah. All right, man. I appreciate your call, Rhombus. Yeah. yeah. Take care. Yeah, thanks for letting me be on TV. Okay, bye-bye. We're going to Mary and Logan. Mary, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, is this Sean? It is. got to turn your TV down, Mary. All right, and, and I just stepped outside. So I'm calling you from an interfaith marriage right now that I've been in for well, five years now. Oh. This. I was raised up in the Catholic Church, and my husband in the LDS Church, his grandfather was actually a bishop. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? What? So we've, we've taken down the address. I think that I am going to write a letter um, after your show's over and abandon shit. Oh, did you join the LDS church? I did not, although before I met my husband, I was approached by some missionaries, and I was almost baptized. Um, what really started to get me was when they tried to entice me, they took me outside and they said, look up, look up there and look at all those stars. See all those stars, and there's all those planets with all those stars. Um, and that you can have your own planet, and you can be your own god someday, and that... Well, that's a, that's an unusual missionary tactic. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that if, if we follow a system of Mormonism, and if I get baptized in the Mormon church, that I could become my own god someday. Wow. <laughs> Maybe they're going to the malls now and taking potential converts and pointing at all the beautiful women and saying, someday you can have as many of them as you want. Well, and here's the thing, though, but it didn't, I was a single mother of two kids at the time, and it didn't appeal to me at all at that time, at this time, and I really don't think that at any point in the future I ever want to be a god. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, I have trouble being, you know, just myself here on earth, getting up out of bed in the morning, and they're working on being a god. I, it just blows my mind. Really interesting. I really appreciate the call, Mary. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, uh, while the operators are going through, phone lines are busy, just keep trying. Let me read a few emails. This is from, uh, I was reading a public statement made by President Hinckley that said, this is from uh, Karen, the LDS Church doesn't view the Bible as the literal description of how life began or how it will end, but it tells us how life ought to be lived, end quote. Interesting, Gordon B. Hinckley, he diminishes the description of how life began, how it ends. He diminishes its impact. He believes Joseph's interpretation of how it began and how it ends. Um, 
Also from Brian uh, H., he says that Joseph Smith's new translation of the Bible on page 402, he translates Luke 10:23 to read, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, but him to who the Son will revealeth it. And in quote, I want you to know that when Joseph Smith was supposedly translating the Bible, he was under a certain image of what the God of what God was, and it was very, uh, uh, very Trinitarian in a sense. And so he continued to receive revelations that were Trinitarian. As he continued to get older and become more and more entranced with becoming a God, and God had a body of flesh and bones, his whole on teaching on the ontology of God changed, and God became a separate being and everything else. But this is evidence right here that Luke chapter 10, verse 23 in the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph Smith contradicts the present day a version of what he said God was in the end. We are going to Jody in Spanish Fork, first-time caller. Jody, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, Sean, I just want to tell you thank you for everything that you do, and be sure and take your, to uh, thank your wife and children for sharing you with us here in Utah. Oh, you're welcome. I'll tell them. Was that it? And, uh, no, I have oh. a question. Okay. Um, we've been listening to your show for about the last year and a half, and you've really taught us a lot, but coming out of Mormonism, I still have a lot of questions, and the one was, on sacrament. I know what it means in the LDS church, but I've never heard of you talk about it in the Christian church. Oh, well, um, in the Christian church, it's usually referred to as communion. And uh, what it is, it's really, frankly, quite simple. There's very little written about it in the Bible, but Jesus said at the Last Supper, listen, take, eat, this is my body, and he broke bread. And he says, take, drink, this cup, this is my blood, which will be shed for you. And, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And there really isn't much else besides when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And so when you're doing it, you're thinking back on the cross. You're thinking back of what he came to do three, two and three days after they had this meal. And that's why we do it. There's nothing that says how often it has to happen. I know a Christian man, they do it every single day. I know churches that do it once a month. I, uh, it just depends on the church, your, your feelings toward it or your thoughts toward it. And it's a wonderful remembrance when you think of the elements. He's, you know, the bread. He's the bread of life. The, the wine being the, the, um, the blood of the earth. The grapes take the earth and they make the blood of the earth. And you drink that in remembrance of him and his shed blood. The interesting thing about the, uh, and it's unleavened bread. Uh, because there is no sin in Jesus, and you do that symbolically. It's interesting that the LDS is a comparative in their sacrament is water and bread that can come from wonder uh, or uh, a sourdough loaf uh, from the second-day-old bakery. They don't care. So it's just some, those are some comparisons in, uh, uh, to the communion and a sacrament. Okay, and so can you do it with wine and unleavened bread? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, we use, for instance, at campus, Calvary Campus, we use grape juice uh, because one reason, if I drank a little wine, I might want a lot more. So I try to avoid that. And also there's children and things. So we use grape juice, which is, which is wine, too. It just isn't fermented. But there are places that use uh, fermented wine as well. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank, great question. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
We're going to LB in Utah County. LB, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey. Hey. Uh, is this Sean? Yeah. Sean, I'm a long-time excommunicated Mormon. Okay. Um, I'm a seeker. Oh, awesome. Continue to be a seeker. and uh, But I sense, for lack of a better word, uh, futility in religion altogether. And so I, I guess my question to you is, what is, what is the ultimate purpose? What is the goal of religion altogether? It's, it's confusion. It represents so many things, negative, you know, wars and fighting and so forth. But um, I'm just curious, what is the purpose? What ultimately is the purpose? Well, it's a, it's a really good question uh, because religion usually means men or women and it usually means rules and it means structure and it means pain and it means devotion so religion has truly a historic historically a negative connotation and so I agree with you there mm -hmm. but there is a time when like-minded believers when they get together when two or three are gathered in his name that is church so to speak and it doesn't need to be the superstructure, and it doesn't need to be the way it has been. And there are churches that exist that don't fall into the religious trap. So there's two answers to your question. On the one hand, religion, in my opinion, is to control and sometimes manipulate and to get their way. But relationship with Christ, that's a whole different issue. And that's where the real living comes in. What if I don't feel a need to have a relationship with, a, with Christ or a, or a God? Well, um, that, that's a really good question, too. Because, uh, you know, what can I say? You don't feel the need. I can try to convince you to have that need. Well, does that, does that make me a humanist? I, no, I don't think it necessarily makes you a humanist, because you might hate people, too. Or, you know, but uh, what it would make you is probably not understanding, and I don't mean you're ignorant, but just not understanding the need for a, a savior. And if you understood the need for one, then maybe your idea or your thought on it would change. Well, you know, after listening to your program for some time, and by the way, I, I really appreciate what you do. Okay, I, Thanks. I, I think Mormonism is insanity and as as do i feel about a lot of other reli all religions right I, mean, I i'm basically non-religion religious but so so not feeling this need for a deity why can't i believe in hum in humanity why can't i believe in me and, and you and man you can and millions and millions and millions of people do but the only the only thing I would say though, LB, is usually and probably in all in all cases, you're going to find yourself extremely disappointed. In J. Vernon McGee, who's a really old time preacher, he said, "Listen, if you don't have a need or a desire for God, live it up. I mean, <laughs> live it up, baby. Go for it with all the gusto you've got." Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I. I I can see that, and, I, and oddly enough, I can also see the sense in moderation. Right. And, but, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just am so conflicted. You know, I've listened to you, 
because we're at three minutes, but yes, let, me, let me say this. One, I would really love to talk with you uh, on the telephone, uh, on my cell phone. So if you have an email, email me and I'll send you my cell phone. I would like to sit down and get together with you because you're, you're exactly the type of person who my heart goes out to. Well, you, you are him. You. So It's greatly appreciated because, you know, I, I, I'm, like I said, I, I continue to seek... I can. I want to know, but I just can't. I just don't get it. That's half the battle, man. If you want to know and you continue to seek, at least you're open. Whether it be a tiny gremlin on Mars or it's God, at least you're open to saying, "I'll I'll take truth where it comes from." So w let's get together. Can we do it? You bet. Come to come down south. Come to Utah County. I, I will. I'll, I'll drive down there to meet with you. I promise. Okay. And thanks again for <laughs> all you do. And flash your email on the screen, would you? Yeah. I'll we'll put it up right now. Thanks again. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. We have two minutes left. Can we put up the email? It's Sean at Aletheia Ministries. I Hopefully, we Sean at HOTM.TV. We got that. We are going to uh, Jay and Orem really quickly. Jay, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jay? I think I cut Jay off. We are going to Johnny in Mapleton. Johnny, you're on Heart of the Matter. You've got one minute, my friend. Hey, Pastor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Hey, doing really good. Hey, uh, there was a book I went through in a small group class a couple of years ago. It's, it's a really wonderful book. It goes along with the church history you're doing, but it's called Church History in Plain Language. Huh. Uh, Bruce L. Shelley. Huh. But it, it goes over how the, the canon of the scripture came together, all the, you know, all the, all the, the workings of, you know, the, the spirit and everything of, of how it formed. And it, it's just a wonderful book. And it's a awesome. Read, and I think it'd go along with your study this month. Oh, good. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, look that up, see if I can grab it, because I, I need help. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We have, a, uh, we have one minute left. I'm going to go to the man wrote me. He calls himself the man, and he says he has questions. Can you be a true Christian and cheer for BYU football? <laughs> I am not too worried about basketball or baseball, but I really like BYU football. I think they're going to kick a lot of rear in this year. You cannot be a Christian, a true Christian, and cheer for BYU football. They are the spawn of the devil. Uh, no, you can do what you, God doesn't care. I, I, you know, come, I know you're being funny here, but you know, I don't think cheering's gonna help them anyway. Uh, and then, uh, is it appropriate for Christians to attribute athletic victories and accomplishments to God? Uh, when a player hits a home run and he thanks God, is he saying God favors him over the pitcher? Um, I, we, we attribute all things to God. We thank him for all things. Defeats as well. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.
Yeah.